It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show Tanya Talaga. She is of Ojibwe heritage and she's a journalist who was with Toronto Star for many years. And of course, she is also the author of the acclaimed Seven Fallen Feathers, which received the RBC Taylor Prize and also won the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for political writing and the First Nation Communities Read for Young Adults. Of course, uh, we're here to talk about something new uh, for you, uh, The Seven Truths, which is an audio version of some of your your, uh, writings that you have uh, been looking into. The the Seven Truths, of course, Seven Grandfather Teachings. Yes, this is something um, totally uh, new from from me, and it was uh, something I've been thinking about for a while, and that is how can we explain and how can we talk about the seven sacred teachings, the seven grandfather teachings in a way that tells contemporary story as well. You know, um, as uh, an Anishinaabe person, I think of these seven teachings and I try to live my life through these teachings. And so I have told stories using each of these teachings. Uh, Some are historical a little bit historical and some are very current this is being done through audible ca which launched in 2017 uh which brings uh, bilingual services to canadians and the opportunity to listen to a broad range of audio books which is not what this is correct this is not an audio book this is an audio version that's right yeah this is a, a podcast series so this is the first time i've ever done a, a podcast series written a podcast series um, and it's it's a whole new for me. It's it's a new format. You know, I've been a a journalist and a um, an author, but I've never written for radio. Mm. And um, podcasts to me are really something I, I wanted to do uh, because you know we it's so much rooted in oral story. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this would be like an incredible way to bring our stories forward. And so I pitched the idea of Seven Truths to Audible, and they accepted it. So that's how it came to you. Um, and consequently, I've been working on it actually all through the, um, all through the pandemic. Mm. Um, I was on a flight on March 12th, leaving Thunder Bay, coming back to Toronto, just having wrapped up. Uh, about four of the episodes interviews that we needed it was the last thing i i did um you know before the lockdown happened Mm. and i'm so grateful that i had that opportunity to be up in thunder bay and to do all of this um and i have to say that um i've got a lot of the the stories are um are of thunder bay are from thunder bay and um, we even um, did some recording in a studio in Thunder Bay. So it's, it's been pretty cool. Now, of course, you're no stranger to public speaking. You, you've been on the road and, and you've done a, a lot of that, that kind of thing. You're, you're a very sought after public speaker. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's funny that you mentioned that because public speaking was never something that I aspired to do in my lifetime. 
I was always the nervous kid in the corner of the class that didn't really have very many friends and preferred to read books and to keep to myself. And um, if you were to have told my 10-year-old self that this is what you would be doing when you hit an older age, I would never have believed it in 10,000 years. Mm. Um, But, you know, I think that if, as especially as an Indigenous person, if you are given a platform, um, if it comes to you, you have to take it mm. and to try and tell our stories. And that's um, that's what I hope I'm doing here with Seven Truths. That responsibility you just spoke about, if you get the opportunity that if it comes to you that you have mm. to take it in order to share those stories and get that message out there. Uh, I think most Indigenous people feel that responsibility. It's not something that necessarily, like you said, that they, that you want, but it's thrust right. upon you and, you and you feel that you need to do that uh, because of that responsibility to, to get the message out there. How do you, how do you see this is, is different? Of course, you mentioned it's very uh, um, oral, so it, it's kind of coming mm-hmm. full circle back to the oral teachings. And, and what a wonderful time of year to, to have it come out. Uh, you know, it's the mm-hmm. time of year for telling stories. As I started to listen to a, a little bit of, of some of them, um, I have to say, I wonder, I wonder how you, you could, you know, um, envision these being um, – uh, used by people, you know, one-on-one in a room with a group of people, maybe with some kids sitting around, mm-hmm. maybe a fire, you know, in a, in a big mm-hmm. room with a, you know, a, a sound system and things at this time of year, because it's, it's time for storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, question. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. You know, one of the things that were re- was really, really important to me telling the seven truths um, was to have them explained through uh, Sam Achni Paneskam. Mm. Sam is uh, an elder, and I, you know, I like to call him my elder, um, not to be possessive or anything like that, but um, Sam has been an incredible help to me, and he is somebody that I speak to every day. Um, I was actually just texting with him um, as he's sitting um, this morning at at the Northwestern Hotel in Thunder Bay, um, actually waiting for his breakfast to arrive. Um, Mm. And, uh, you know, Sam has been an incredible help to to me, and he is throughout each of the um, each of the podcast episodes speaking in Anishinaabewewin, speaking mm. in our language, mm. um, the seven truths, the seven teachings, and so I am so happy to bring a language component to the podcast because I think that's so important with our storytelling and with the teaching aspect too of the this podcast series. Um, I hope that that comes across and that you can sit around a campfire or sit in a classroom and talk about these stories and listen to Sam's words and to the meaning of the teachings and think about and reflect how can you apply them to your own life. Mm-hmm. You know, and how Canada, too. I mean, non-Indigenous people can also apply these teachings to their lives. I mean, these teachings are, you know, love and bravery, humility, wisdom, honesty, respect, and truth. All of these teachings are so integral in just leading your life as as a human being. And I often think that Canadians would benefit as well from taking these teachings to heart. When you mention non-Indigenous uh, people as well, 
who do you think the series is for? The series is for everyone. It really is. You know, it's a, it's a series about our teachings. It's a series for anyone who is willing to open their ears and their hearts to listen to these stories. I hope that it will, um, it will have broad appeal. And I hope that people will listen with open hearts. Really do. As someone who is an author, you've worked in different mediums. You've worked in in presentation. You've worked uh, as a journalist. So you're you're always telling stories in different in me- different mediums, using different ways to apply these stories. How how do you how do you think each of those mediums uh, help to get the message out there? And and what do you think the overlapping uh, element is, if there is one? Hmm. Um, you know, each of the, the mediums have their own challenges. You know, speaking to a classroom or to a room full of people or to a lecture hall is hmm. totally different from doing a podcast series right. or doing a radio show. Um, and this is uh, this is something that I've learned, you know, and I've also learned that it's it's difficult. You know, it's it's difficult writing um, for a condensed space for a 30-minute time slot with uh, an episode and figuring out how you bring in so many voices. But the beautiful thing about podcast is is that it's other people telling the story, you know. Um, And I'm so grateful. I have to just tell you right off the bat, I'm so grateful for everyone, everyone who participated in this series. I mean, we have some incredible, incredible voices. And these stories come from our communities. These stories come from the land. And that was really important to me to get as many voices as I could to tell these stories. And, you know, I'm just just briefly, I'll, I'll tell you that um, in one of this, the episodes um, on the teaching called Respect, we have um, the whole episode is about Anasnabe Park and about the occupation of the park that happened in 1974. And the story is told through the eyes of Lynn Skeed, who is, um, um, she's older now, but she was uh, a young woman at the time of the occupation, and she was there. Um, And she uh, is the um, former partner of Louis Cameron, Mm. who uh, led that occupation with the Ojibwe Warrior Society. And, you know, her voice is incredible. And I'm so grateful that she told us her story for respect. And her son, Tyler, Louis Cameron's son Mm. is also in the podcast and Mm. he's reading his father. Mm. His father was interviewed um, in the early 1970s by a journalist. And we found this incredible transcript of him and his words. Mm. And to hear Tyler, you know, talk about or to be his father Mm. and to, to tell the occupation through his eyes, it was just remarkable. Mm. And also in that episode, we have Robert Yago, um, an incredible journalist um, that I am um, so so grateful to know, you know, and bringing in these voices in a podcast and like so people can hear the voices of our people and people from different nations is so incredible to me. And that's a different way of storytelling. You know, when you're you're writing a book, it's um, you are also bringing in people's voices, but the narrative is very much your own. Mm. You are the one that is leading the storytelling. 
Um, so this has been a beautiful experience for me, I have to say, and I'm so proud of everyone who participated. Mm. It sounds great. I can't wait to to hear this, and and you know, congratulations to you on on getting this done. And uh, and you know that that sounds wonderful. I want to come back to Sam if you don't mind, because you introduced sure. him at the very top of the the first episode. As you said, you referred to him as your elder. <laughs> and uh, you guys have a bit of a chuckle on 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 the, the you know on the mics about that. Why do you why do you say he's your elder? First of all, um, well, I, I phrase it like that because you know he's been my teacher. He's very much been my teacher. Um, I am I'm in ceremony with Sam. Um, I go to the lodge with with Sam. Um, Sam is painfully on his part teaching me language every time I'm asking him because like I come from I come from nothing I had no language to to fall back on I mean my mother um, I've talked about this before in books um, you know uh, in my writings before my mom was raised by residential school survivors who mm-hmm. believed uh, speaking Anishinaabewewin was you know was dirty mm-hmm. and so they didn't mm-hmm. it wasn't allowed when she was growing up and so we've lost our language mm-hmm. and I'm slowly trying to, to learn again. And um, the episode, the first episode, love is about, um, is about love in the sense of loving community, loving the people that you know, loving Anishinaabe ways and traditions and truths and it's about um, my affection, too, for Sam and for all that he's taught and all that he has done. I mean, um, I talk about this in the, um, in the first episode. Sam is a survivor of three Indian residential schools. And um, he has he's lived the life and he continues to live it. He continues to, to teach and to be an open heart and open ears to anyone who asks for it. Um, and you, you can often find him holding court in uh, Tim Hortons downtown in Thunder Bay, you know, speaking to whoever needs to to um, to listen. And uh, he's he's an incredible force. Um, I met him during the youth inquest into the seven fallen feathers. Mm. And we have been in touch since then. Um, when we did the Massey lectures across Canada, mm-hmm. Sam came with me. Mm. He closed out every single lecture in a good way. Um, he was with me and um, got me in the place I needed to be before I went on stage and spoke those lectures because some of them are very, very difficult to to speak of. You know, I talk about genocide. I talk about the uh, loss of, um, of youth in our communities. Um, I talk about difficult things. And so we would start in ceremony every time I went onto stage. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Tanya Talaga. She is, of course, a person of Ojibwe heritage, and uh, she is also an author, a journalist. And we're talking to her about uh, something new coming out very soon, uh, audible um, series that she has about uh, seven truths and about the seven teachings, uh, the grandfather teachings, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show. You, you talk about the seven teachings, and you talk about Sam and about that love that he mm-hmm. embodies. But you just talked also about his being a survivor of three residential schools. And it would be very easy for someone like Sam to be very negative and full of hate. How, where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that 
that passion and that love comes from? It comes from his teachings. It comes from love of community, love of our people. You know, he never gives up. That's the one thing that I admire so much about Sam. You know, he is someone who I would consider is, you know, one of one of our heroes. He has been visiting people. Um, he's not doing it right now at the moment, but for a long time, he was in the Thunder Bay Jail um, as an elder speaking to whoever, uh, anyone who needed him. He speaks very much with youth. Um, in youth facilities in Thunder Bay. He spends time with everyone who needs him. He's always there. Um, you can even see him, you know, in demonstrations and um, you'll always see him sort of standing at the side or wherever. Um, he is, um, he's someone who lives his life by the teachings. And you're absolutely right. You know, there's been a lot of sadness in Sam's life and he has overcome, you know, um, and that to me is an inspiration. He always looks forward and thinks about our youth and about our future. And that can be hard. You know, it can be really hard keeping a positive outlook when you've had a lot of um, history happen to you. Mm-hmm. But as Indigenous people, we all have had history happen to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't, you don't ask for it, right? I mean, you didn't ask to be sent to um, uh, three residential schools. Mm-hmm. And before he was sent, he was lucky to live on the land with his family mm. and to learn his language and his teachings. And um, that's something he carries with him. And he does find it um, um, important to pass it on. Mm. You're also uh, the president and CEO of Makwa Creative. That, that company also focuses on Indigenous storytelling. So everything you, you're focused on is, is about storytelling. And, and again, you, as you mentioned, um, as with Sam, as with many other Indigenous people that, that have sad stories uh, of, the, of parts of their lives that could be easily uh, – could easily um, overwhelm these stories – and could focus on the negative. So, as someone like yourself that is that is always telling stories, that is always that, and, and many of these stories have are heartbreaking. Many of these stories are difficult, and there's uh, uh, lots of, of difficult parts to share. How do you how do you uh, go about getting those stories out? So, because you want to make sure that they are accepted by people, that they don't turn people off, and that you you want to mm-hmm. educate and also inform and enlighten. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miigwech for that. You know, um, the resiliency of our people, I hope that shines through in our storytelling. And I hope people can see that and hear that when you listen to Seven Truths, when you listen to the story of respect in Anasnabe Park and, you know, love the the story of Sam and uh, love for community. You know, I hope people connect with that and embrace that. I've always hoped that my storytelling tells the stories of those in our community and gives voice to many in our community that didn't have voice before, you know, Mm. there was a, and that's why I started Macwa Creative as well. Um, For such a long time, 
our voices were not heard. Mm. They were silenced. They were they were erased. Mm. Um, there was an attempt by Canadian society, Canadian government, to completely erase us from the land. Um, in schools, our language, our, our everything about us, the way we live, and that has failed. You know, and why has that failed? It's the resiliency and the beauty of our people. And we're only going to get stronger, you know. Um, I'm getting older now, and uh, part of the work that I do, I know, and the work Sam does, is to get that new generation up and running and to like, give them a good push and say, there you go. Tell our stories, and people will listen if you tell them with an open and honest heart. And I hope that's uh, what people will get out of Seven Truths. You know, you mentioned that you've been doing this, you want to pass it on to the further generations. Mm-hmm. And as you say, you know, you've been out there telling the stories. You've been sharing them through journalism. You've been sharing them through your books. You've just been sharing them through the nasty lectures. In the time that you have been out there and sharing the stories, have you seen this making an impact on, like you say, the younger generations who are going to continue to share the stories that you want to bring in so that they do that, but also on the non-Indigenous community of, of Canada? Oh, yeah. You know, um, it's uh, thanks for that question, too, because, you know, it's um, it's nice to see how after 2015, things did start to change so much. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And 2015 was the release of the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commission uh, final report. You know, that the moment really opened a lot of things up. Because before then, uh, people weren't listening to our voices as much, right? I mean, like I spent a long time in mainstream media and it was hard. You know, um, there wasn't a, a massive appetite to listen to our stories. And after um, social, even the rise of social media, absolutely, you know, with Idle No More playing such a huge role in getting our voices out there, the TRC opening up education for non-Indigenous Canadians so they could see what happened, the true history in their own country. All of that has been so important. And I hope it's given youth a sense of of pride, too, Mm -hmm. in knowing who they are and where they come from. And, you know, you could see it everywhere. You know, you could see it in the youth of Thunder Bay. You can can see it from our youth coast to coast to coast. so many times we hear their stories now, we listen to their music, we see their art, and their voices are unstoppable. And I think they're only going to get stronger and stronger. And imagine what kind of an awful, cold place Canada would be without our voices. Nicely mm, mm, mm-hmm. said. You also say that you try to live your life by the seven teachings. As someone that walks in two worlds and has been doing that for quite some time. How, how is, is that a challenge for you? For sure. You know, um, you know, I talk about that in the first episode, love. I talk about the fact that, you know, my father is, is Polish. Like he was mm-hmm. Polish. He, he passed away in the um, late nineties. Um, and my mom is Ojibwe, right? My mom was raised in the traditional territory of Fort William First Nation. Mm-hmm. And it's, not easy it's not easy making that that walk right and you know i was raised outside of community um i was raised in toronto 
And so I would go back with my mom to, to go to race, to go to Thunder Bay and visit with our, our family. And so then when I talk about the seven teachings, it very much is a personal journey because I am learning. I'm learning what it means to be an Anishinaabe person. And I think I learn every single day. And I, I learn with the help of people like Sam. You know, I learn um, through the stories that I tell, through the people that I meet. I think that um, I'm always on a constant journey of learning. Mm. And that's how I see myself in the seven teachings for sure. You know, it's it's interesting. I was going to ask you to something you just sort of alluded to, and that is that you're always learning, but you're also uh, using these these tools to teach others at the same time. And and it's an interesting process because I think it's like rereading something. When you go back and reread mm-hmm. something, you always see something different in there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on some things that you can pull out and 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 um, and learn from, or say, I didn't see that before. And I think that's. Uh, would you say that that is, is a similar thing for yourself in, in terms of you are always learning more as you go deeper mm-hmm. and deeper into this, but you're always, of course, sharing this with others and trying to get the message out there for, for the teachings to, to help others with as well? Mm-hmm. I would say that's true. You know, that's absolutely true because I'm learning about uh, about myself. And, you know, I think, um, and thank you for saying that it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also teaching as I go along because I'm learning and I'm trying to bring that that sort of path to other people because so many of us have been affected by the 60s scoop, have been affected mm. by residential school, have, um, you know, have grown up in families that didn't speak um, our language or know our ways because they were told that they were, you know, dirty and bad. Mm. Um, and uh, you had to be a good Canadian and, you know, whatever that meant. Um and so I think there are a lot of um, of people like myself that are reclaiming, you know, yeah. and trying to figure out a way forward. And I hope that the Seven Truths helps a lot of people with that as well. I have to ask you this because as you were talking, I thought about it um, in, in terms of the, the person who is the Indigenous person in a given area or in a given moment somewhere, um, not necessarily uh, by choice, but you are, you automatically are the expert. You know what I'm saying? You're automatically the expert. Which is, <laughs> you know, sucks because you're not, right? You know, like it's just, you know, it's, it's so funny because, you know, I remember being on a national radio show, not yours, not yours, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was a political talk show, right? And um, I got asked where the Indigenous vote was. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, and I said, I think I said on air, you know, well, gee, let me just pick up the phone and ask everyone. <laughs> I mean, you know, people assume that right. you are the speaker for yes. everyone. Yes. And that's so not true, right? Because we have so many nations, we yes. have so many voices. And even in the term Indigenous, you know, you've got First mm-hmm. Nation, Métis, Inuit. Mm-hmm. It's like it's. Yeah, that's it's it's a tough label, you know. It is when you get la- labeled expert. How do you feel now that you've been doing this for quite some time, and you've been, of course, sharing all these stories through through journalism and through your your novels and, and through the books that mm-hmm. you write and and all of these things? Do you feel anywhere close to, to being an expert at this point in time because of what you've been doing? No way, you know. It's <laughs> the opposite. It makes me realize how much I have to learn. Mm. You know, um, I have so much to learn. Um, for instance, when I was um, 
by writing the Massey lectures, being on the West Coast and getting to know the, uh, some of the Stolo nations. I'm mm. like, wow, mm. our communities are so incredible and so diverse. Mm. And, you know, I am just so blessed to be here and to be learning these ways, uh, the ways of the Musqueam, the ways of the Squamish, um, and how uh, little I know um, beyond my own little confines too, right, mm. of, of northern Ontario and, and in the north. I mean, our communities are so diverse. Um, and we all come from different places and different experiences, mm. but we all have the commonality of colonization yeah. and what that has done to our mm. families. But I, I think that I'm learning more every day. I really do. Right. Well, Seven Truths is going to be available on November 26th, I believe. Yep. Honestly, um, the voices here of our communities, they're just priceless mm. and they're wonderful. And I hope people listen and I hope they um, they love them as much as I do. All right. That's uh, the voice of Tanya Talaga. She is, of course, uh, an author and she is a journalist. And it's been a pleasure to have her on the show talking about uh, her latest endeavor. And that is Seven Truths on audible.ca on November 25th. And it is a series that will be available there. So I encourage everyone to go and see Seven Truths. It's a Canadian Audible original podcast. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Mandy Van Hoovelen. She's the Public Affairs Specialist, the Cultural Interpreter Coordinator for the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Mandy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, and I understand that there is more than one location that you actually have for the National Museum of the American Indian as well. Correct. I am located in Washington, D.C., and we have our sister museum in Lower Manhattan in New York City. And that museum actually opened first, and the museum on the mall opened in 2004. And we have uh, one more facility, which is located in Maryland, um, just a few miles from our museum in D.C. It's called the Cultural Resource Center, and it houses our collection. Mm. When you say collection, what does that mean? Our museum's collection spans thousands of years and represents the indigenous cultures of North, Central, and South America. And um, the majority of it was collected by one person over the course of his lifetime. His name was George Gustav High, and he was based out of New York, where he started the Museum of the American Indian. Uh, and we uh, received that collection when Congress passed the National Museum of the American Indian Act in 1989. At that, uh, at the time of Mr. High's death, there was about 880,000 items in the collection. That mm. was in 1957. And now our collection spans uh, more than one million items. Wow. Uh, if, if that holds the collection... Then what does, for instance, in Washington, D.C., what do you do there and, and what can people see there? Sure. So our collection is on display in both our New York and D.C. museums uh, for the public to to see and experience. Um, in D.C., I work with uh, education programs and public programs. And so our job is really to help visitors um, make meaning and connections to the objects and exhibitions that are on display in the museum. Hmm. 
couple of things pop into mind when you say education. Uh, first of all, to what extent would you say that the museum is utilized uh, across the country in terms of education, uh, whether that be from a state to state or whether it be from, uh, you know, from elementary or, or middle school, high school levels? Sure. So our museum is really focused on providing accurate resources to educators um, through our national education initiative, which is called Native Knowledge 360. Mm. And um, there are several online um, lesson plans and digital resources, materials, where educators can go to learn these um, more accurate narratives about Indigenous peoples and bring them into the classrooms. Uh, So that's a really important part of the work of the National Museum of the American Indian, something that we're continuously adding to um, through those online resources. And since um, the pandemic happened, we've also been doing virtual educator professional development sessions as well as virtual field trips for students. So um, it's the part of my job that I really love the most because um, I just, the one of the reasons why I work at this museum is because I do deeply believe that education is, um, you know, a path towards positive change. Mm. And I, I think that our resources reflect that. Can you, can you give us a little more, detail or understanding of of how that operates and and what you mean by that? Sure. So um, we work in using the museum's collection and scholarship and uh, content to develop uh, lesson plans that can be used directly in the classroom. And so they're based on primary resources, first-person perspectives, oral histories, uh, and they align with uh, national social studies standards across the United States. Uh, So there's videos um, really bringing that Native perspective and voice into the classroom. Mm. And I'm not sure if you, you have the answer to this, but I'm just wondering if you have a sense of how the information you provide has either helped and or you have seen a difference in either attitudes or the education of younger generations as they come into to find out or ask questions in the museum. Sure, absolutely. So we've done some formal evaluation of these resources that have shown that um, students are able to, you know, take away new understandings of, for example, familiar events in history like the Cherokee Trail of Tears. And so we have those formal evaluations and probably the part of of my job, one of the parts I like the most is actually getting to see the students uh, in person make realizations for the first time. And, um, you know, we have those kind of anecdotal stories of students um, or letters of thank you, of gratitude that they've been sending into us recently, where they've just um, told us that these Uh, the lessons that they've learned have helped them think differently about American history, about uh, Native American people, and about how they could question 
the narratives or stories they hear about in whether it's in popular culture or in the classroom to think about, you know, was their native perspective provided? And I just um, got some emails from students who are part of a program recently where that was exactly what they said. So um, those are some really positive responses that we've gotten from students. And we've also um, gotten responses from educators who are just grateful to have these resources that um, they're, they're able to use in the classroom. Mm. When you say realizations for the first time, uh, w- what do you mean by that? Sure. So I guess the one that stands out most clearly to me is, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., our, our um, NFL football team mm. just recently changed its imagery and mm. mascot right. and name because the name was a racial slur. Mm. And we did some programming in the museum last year. Prior to that, um, we actually produced a play called Hear Me Say My Name. Mm. And it was meant to address a lot of uh, stereotypes about um, American Indians. And this was in Washington, D.C., so it's the local team. And the number one thing we did some, uh, we got some feedback from students after they watched it that they said they learned mm-hmm. was about the Washington football team's name, that it was offensive, mm-hmm. um, that it was inappropriate and harmful. And that was really powerful to see students, some as young as second grade, uh, you know, watch this um, performing arts program and come away with a really powerful message. And, um, you know, I hope that as those uh, as the team changed its name over the summer, they were able to recall that moment when they first learned about why that name was problematic. Mm. Well, that's good to hear. Um, Would you say and, you know, this is this I have no idea about the answer to this from the state side. So I'm just curious. What would you say is the the general public's interpretation or thought around Indigenous people at this point in time that you're hearing from when people come in to visit. And, and what I mean by that is, do, do you think that people still generally think of Indigenous people as historical, not in the present? Or do you think that there is a, a greater awareness of the fact that indigenous people are still alive, still part of the the North American uh, population, and and uh, have value and uh, and have historical value as well in terms of their lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I would say you know on a day to day basis, you will see people on sort of all uh, all. Um, Facets of that mm. scale of, mm. you know, some people just don't know Native people are still here. Mm. And that's not surprising um, to us. It's something we encounter every day. Um, and then you have people who are really engaged. They're allies to Indigenous people. They're coming to our museum because of their knowledge of uh, Native people and wanting to support them. And then there's people in the middle who know that what they know isn't quite right or isn't quite accurate, and they're looking to the museum to learn more and understand more about our history, 
as well as, you know, who Indigenous people are today, what issues are important to them. Um, I think that I've been with the museum for 11 years, and I think that in some ways that public perception is changing. People have a greater awareness and um, sensitivity around, you know, different um, issues. And there were some, you know, events that brought worldwide attention to Indigenous rights, such as the protests at Standing Rock Mm. over the Dakota Access Pipeline, Mm -hmm. you know, that gained a lot of awareness. But there's still a lot of misinformation out there about Native people. And one of the reasons why we're, you know, developing lessons for classrooms is that a majority of classrooms in the U.S. today don't teach about Native people past the year 1900. And so, you know, we, we want to change that and, um, you know, build a better public awareness of who Native people are, why they matter, why their issues are important. You know, that's really interesting to hear because it, I'm wondering how, how you, you, you feel about the fact that you, you have all this knowledge, you have, you know, you're here representing the American Indian from the museum's perspective, uh, trying to share, trying to get those teachings out there uh, to the school, to education. Uh, but to hear that the, the education system in many places don't teach past the 1900s, um, Wow. That, that's very interesting just to start with. Um, do, you, do you guys reach out to the educational system to try to change that? Or do you know if there's new, uh, new books coming out that are going to upgrade and, and include the, you know, the present day? Absolutely. Um, we've, our education department has worked closely with state education departments and organizations in the U.S., and some of which are enacting legislation called Indian Education for All, requiring that education about Indigenous people is taught in public schools, K through 12. So those are important, um, you know, important ways uh, in which things are moving forward and are changing. And um, we're going to continue to form those partnerships to work with state education offices, um, the Bureau of Indian Education here in the United States as well, and um, find, you know, avenues to reach educators. Every um, For the past um, several summers, we've hosted a um, teacher institute, an educator institute, where we're sharing, you know, the research about the state of, of um, Indian education in the U.S. Um, we're sharing our resources, you know, uh, helping people understand how to utilize them and how to access um, primary sources about Native people, how to question the way history has been taught in the past. And this summer, um, for the first time, we went virtual and we had, uh, you know, thousands of educators from all over um, the world join that institute. And so it's just one, you know, one small way I think that we're trying to make an impact and we're continuing to do that work and we're continuing to share um not just our resources, but best best practices and approaches to um, teaching about Native cultures. And I think that, you know, hopefully we'll continue to see change. And I, I think that there has been some change and there's more awareness now about the problems 
And there are dedicated educators out there who, you know, really are doing their best to change um, their curriculum, to change what their teachers are learning in the classroom. And so we have to give a lot of credit to those educators who are doing the work. I'm your host, David Moses. With me on the show is Mandy Van Hoovelin. She is a public affairs specialist, a cultural interpreter coordinator for the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., and it's a pleasure to have her on the show. Uh, Mandy, you know, you, you mentioned uh, international there just briefly, and and I was wondering about the international scope of the museum and and uh, how that uh, how how you sort of maybe partner up and or uh, receive requests or, or or just international travelers that come to the museum? Yeah, absolutely. I think Washington, D.C., and especially our New York location are hubs for international travel, um, especially in New York. We have a, a really wide-ranging uh, audience there. And, you know, we see that through um, on-site visitation at the museum And what we've learned since moving the majority of our programs online is that there is a real demand for this information and um, knowledge about Indigenous people and interest in Indigenous issues all over the world. Um, So our museum does represent Indigenous people and nations of North Central and South America. So we're hemispheric in scope and in all that we do through our um, our collection, our exhibitions, our resources. Um, but we definitely are um, reaching people all around the world as well. Uh, and so the way we involve tribal communities from across the Western Hemisphere is, is through our exhibitions and through our public programs, um, through research and work with our collections and then with audiences we one of the first um, virtual field trips we did was with a group in turkey and we've seen a large demand um coming from india as well and so it's interesting to see you know we had a class join at 12 30 a.m their time in india to see one of our programs and i thought that was real uh, dedication from those students yeah well that's that's really great that's fabulous um am i understanding that uh, november is national american indian heritage month correct yes it is and and what is the museum doing uh, around that uh, we have a lot of different um online programs happening this month you know normally we would be in the museum um but because of the you know the pandemic we're not able to do so um one of the things that was just such an important project that that we saw come to fruition um this week actually was the opening of the national native american veterans memorial Mm. on our site in washington dc and um, we had a, a opening video um, that's available on our website for anybody who'd like to see that. But the memorial is honoring the military service of Native Americans and Alaska Natives and Native Hawaiians. And so a really uh, uh, important project that we saw uh, come to fruition 
In addition to that, we have different kinds of programming happening uh, virtually, a lot all available online. Um, we're hosting um, our 20th anniversary of the Native Cinema Showcase, which mm. is a film series. Mm. There's going to be about 64 films streaming mm. from our website. Um, and so that is one way that people can connect and celebrate uh, Native American Heritage Month with the museum. Uh, when you mention a cinema series, can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of uh, films that people will be seeing? Are they all historic, for instance, in nature, or how do they how do they vary? Yeah, so it's a it's a really diverse set of programs, uh, and um, not all about historic mm-hmm. um, issues or, or um, narratives. A lot of it is you know, showcasing Indigenous filmmakers, Indigenous Mm. actors. So you're really going to see that representation, which is so important in media. Um, And a lot of it um, also showing uh, issues that are of importance to Indigenous people, um, such as uh, climate change, Mm. you know, issues of identity, um, there's so many different ways that Indigenous people are expressing themselves through these films. And so I do uh, really encourage, it's a great diversity of um, programming and uh, representation available. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, actors and you mentioned uh, filmmakers. Under normal circumstances, the museum, I also understand, does many live events and those kind of things. You, you kind of mentioned the, the, the play uh, that you had developed, I think, earlier as well. Uh, what, what kind of live events does the museum bring forward? Sure, we have a, ro- a wide variety of live events um, that we do. Uh, it, it, in addition to film programs, we do um, festivals um, like tribal festivals mm-hmm. where we've invited tribal communities to come to the museum and share their cultures. Um, so we've done that for several years. Um, we have, for example, an annual Living Earth Festival um, that happens in April. Most of that programming will be online this year. However, it's one of our largest uh, museum events. And each each year, the theme is a little bit different, but it's focusing on issues related to the land, to our earth, to water, um, climate change. Uh, and so um, depending on the time of year, we have a, a wide variety of programs. We've done, um, you know, musical performances, uh, plays, um, dance, contemporary dance, um, all different types of cultural and performing arts programs at the museums. I'm not sure if you know much about this side of it, but how would you say things have changed in terms of how museums uh, gather their items and or repatriation of items and, uh, and, and those kind of things that, that are, of course are ongoing these days? Yes. So I think that the, you know, the National Museum of the American Indian Act, when it was passed through uh, legislation into law in 1989, was actually a really important time for repatriation in the United States. One year later, the U.S. would pass the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. 
And um, so I would say that our, our museum really led the way to getting federal change and federal le- legislation to return um, sacred and uh, ceremonial objects to a native tribe. So that is a, an important part of the work that continues at our museum. And we've also you know, been able to work with other museums to help them form their own policies uh, for repatriation. And it's something that I think museums are much more aware of now uh, than they were in, you know, 1990 and have taken um, a real stance on doing the work Mm. that needs to be done to consulting with tribal communities. Um, That's a really important part of the work that our museum does. We also have a loan program to bring these uh, collection objects um, back into the communities um, so that they can be on display in tribal museums. Uh, So it's an ongoing process. I, I would say that positive change has been made, but, you know, some of these collections are are enormous. And so you, you could almost say the work is never going to end. We're going to continue to um, support tribal communities, to work with them, to um, work through the repatriation process. It's it's definitely a part of an ongoing process. Okay. Um, I'm also wondering about for, well, during COVID, uh, things obviously have changed. How are, how are things now for visitors that uh, come to the museum? And, and is it open still to visitors at this time? So the museum in D.C. opened in late September. The museum in New York City is not yet opened. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was a you know major undertaking uh, for the Smithsonian and for our museum to get back open to the public. Since opening, I believe we've had about 10,000 visitors already come to the museum. Some of our spaces and galleries are closed due to the social distancing guidelines. Right. Um, we implemented a ticketing system. So the museums are free, um, but there is uh, tickets required. And then we have limited hours. So right. in D.C., we're open Wednesday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, and there's uh, safety protocols in place. It's just an ongoing um, situation that we continue to mo- monitor both at our museum and at the Smithsonian level. So we were happy, to, though, to be able to welcome back um, visitors to the museum. Right. And once things do get back to normal, and even for people that might be going uh, to during the, the time of the, the COVID situation, uh, how much time do you think a person would need uh, comfortably to travel through any any one of the locations? Yeah, I think that depends on your dedication <laughs> as a museum visitor. But I think most people spend about an hour or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 some exhibitions might draw people in for longer periods mm-hmm. of time, but the museums are uh, quite large and you could spend, you know, an entire afternoon right. um, at, our, at the museum to really go in depth into the exhibitions and, and um, take time to see everything. 
Uh, one of the things is in DC, we're located on the National Mall, where there are many other Smithsonian museums, mm. and um, people often try to do more than humanly possible in their visit. <laughs> right. uh, and so we see that too. Sometimes it's just a really short um, stop to go in, come inside and uh, mm-hmm. take a break and walk around a little bit while others spend, you know, I've seen people spend an entire day there. Right. So it kind of ranges. Right. Yeah, we're getting very close to the end of our time, but I'm just wondering, we've been talking about Indigenous people, we've been talking about the museum and what it does, uh, and you have mentioned the involvement of Indigenous people in live events and in the film series that you're doing. How how much is, and how important is that involvement uh, with Indigenous people while, while doing things in the museum, and what kind of feedback do you hear from Indigenous people themselves? Yeah, those are great questions. You know, it's really the involvement of Indigenous people in this museum is really part of the museum's foundation. Before the building was even built on the National Mall, there were, you know, consultations that took place with communities all across the Americas to first ask Native people what they wanted the museum to be and and what they wanted it to represent and how they wanted their cultures presented here. And we've maintained that kind of connection and collaboration and consultation with Native people um, through the, through our exhibitions, through our public programs. It's such an important part of the work that we do. You know, even prior to building the Native American Veterans Memorial, there were uh, many consultations and travel out into Native communities to talk with Native veterans about what this uh, memorial meant and again, how they wanted it to reflect their service. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a critical part of, of what we do. And as far as, you know, how do Native people view our museum? That's a, a difficult question to, to answer because it's we represent such a diversity of people and perspectives. You know, in, in some cases, people would like to see us go further in mm. some of our exhibitions to mm-hmm. make bolder statements. Sure. Um, than we do, um, you know, while others are great supporters of the work that we do and still others who might not be happy mm-hmm. um, with the museum. And that just shows you the diversity of the people and the cultures that we represent. Right. That is Mandy Van Hoovelin. She is the public affairs specialist for and cultural interpreter coordinator for the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and we'll see you back here again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM.